Chapter 26 of Unicorns. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Unicorns by James Hunnaker. Chapter 26. More about Richard Wagner. Time was when a fame-craving young man could earn a reputation for originality by merely going to the marketplace and loudly proclaiming his disbelief in a deity it would seem that modern critics of richard wagner busily engaged in placing the life of the composer under their microscopes are seeking the laurels of the ambitious chap aforesaid never has the music of wagner been more popular than now his name on the opera billboards is bound to crowd a house and never paradoxically as it may sound has there been such a critical hue and cry over his works and personality the publication of his autobiography has much to do with this renewal of interest there is some praise much abuse to be found in the newly published books on the subject european critics are building up little islands of theory coral-like some with fantastic lagoons others founded on stern truth and many doomed to be washed away overnight nevertheless the true richard wagner is beginning to emerge from the haze of nibelheim behind which he contrived to hide his real self wagner the gigantic comedian wagner the egotist wagner the victim of a tragic love wagner tone poet mock philosopher and a wonderful apparition in the world of art till success overtook him then wagner became bored with no more worlds to conquer deserted by his best friends whom he had alienated without the solace of the men he had most loved the men who had helped him over the thorny path of his life liszt nietzsche von bulow otto wessendonck and how many others even king ludwig the second whom he had treated with characteristic ingratitude no richard wagner during the sterile years so called from eighteen sixty six to eighteen eighty three was not a contented man Despite his union with Cosima von Bülow Liszt and the foundation of a home and family at Bayreuth, one, however, there are exceptions. One is the book of Otto Bournot entitled Ludwig Geyer, the stepfather of Richard Wagner. I wrote about it in 1913 for the New York Times. In this slender volume of only 72 pages, the author sifts all the evidence in the Geyer-Wagner question, and he has delved into archives into the newspapers of geyer's days and has had access to hitherto untouched material it must be admitted that his conclusions are not to be lightly denied august bottiger's necrology has until recently been the chief source of facts in the career of geyer but wagner's autobiography which in spots bernat corrects and the life of wagner by mary burrell not to mention other books have furnished bernat with new weapons the geyers as far back as seventeen hundred were simple pious folk the first of the family being a certain benjamin geyer who about seventeen hundred was a trombone player and organist indeed the chief occupation of many geyers was in some way or other connected with the evangelical church ludwig heinrich christian geyer was a portraitist of no mean merit an actor of considerable power his friends more was a favorite role with the public a dramatist of fair ability he wrote a tragedy among others named the slaughter of the innocents and also a verse-maker his acquaintance with weber stimulated his interest in music weber discovered his voice and he sang in opera 
truly a versatile man who displayed in miniature all the qualities of wagner the latter was too young at the time of geyer's death september eighteen twenty one to have profited much by the precepts of his stepfather but his example certainly did prove stimulating to the imagination of the budding poet and composer geyer married joanna wagner Burtz. mary burrell was the first to give the correct spelling of her maiden name the widow of the police functionary wagner to whose memory richard pays such cynical homage in his obituary august fourteenth eighteen fourteen she had about two hundred and sixty-one thalerin and eight children a ninth came later in the person of cecile who afterward married a member of the avenarius family cecile or sicily was a prime favorite with richard seven years passed and again frau geyer found herself a widow with nine children and little money how the family all tumbled up in the world owing much to the courage wit vivacity and unshaken will-power of their mother may be found in the autobiography bernard admits that geyer and his wife may have carried to the grave certain secrets richard wagner until he was nine years old was known as richard geyer and on page thirteen of his book our author prints the following significant sentence quote, the possibility of wagner's descent from geyer contains in itself nothing detrimental to our judgment of the artwork of bearruth in nineteen hundred a twenty-page pamphlet bearing the title richard wagner in zurich was published in leipzig it was signed hans bellart and gave for the first time to a much mystified world the story of wagner's passion for matilda wessendonck thus shattering beyond hope of repair our cherished belief that cosima von bulow liszt had been the lodestone of wagner's desire that to her influence was due the creation of tristan and isolde its composer's high-water mark in poetic dramatic music now bellart not content with his iconoclastic pamphlet has just set forth a fat book which he calls richard wagner's love tragedy with matilda wessendonck we had thought that the last word in the matter had been said when bearruth queen cosima i allowed the publication of wagner's diaries and love-letters to matilda though her complete correspondence is as yet unpublished but bellart is one of the busiest among the german critical choral builders he has dug into musty newspapers and letters and gives at the close of his work a long list of authorities yet nothing startling new comes out of his researches we knew that matilda wessendonck was the first love of wagner a genuine and noble passion not his usual self-seeking philandering we also know that otto wessendonck behaved like a patient husband and a gentleman any other man would have put a bullet in the body of the thrice impertinent genius knew too that tristan and isolde was born of this romance but there is a mass of fresh details petty backstairs gossip all the tittle-tattle beloved of such writers that in company with julius capps wagner und die freude makes belzart's new book a valuable one for reference capp who has written a life of franz liszt goes bellart one better and hinting that the infatuated couple transformed their idealism into realism bellart does not believe this neither does emil ludwig the latest critical commentator on wagner but neither critic gives the profoundest proof that the love of richard and matilda was an exalted platonic one that is the proof physiologic i firmly believe that if matilda westendonck had eloped with wagner in eighteen fifty eight as he begged her to do tristan and isolde might not have been finished 
at all events the third act would not have been what it is now a mighty longing is better for the birth of great art than facile happiness for the first time in his selfish unhappy life wagner realized goethe's words of wisdom renounce thou shalt shalt renounce it was a bitter sacrifice but out of its bitterness sweetness came the honey and moonlight of tristan and isolde wagner suffered matilda suffered otto wessendonck suffered and last but not least men of wagner the poor pawn in his married game suffered to distraction let us begin with a quotation on the last page but three of bell art's book quote, remarked otto wessendonck to a friend i have hunted wagner from my threshold unquote. this was in august eighteen fifty eight wagner first met the wessendonks about eighteen fifty two three years after he had fled to zurich from dresden because of his participation in the uprising of eighteen forty nine wagner as amateur revolutionist thanks to the request of his wife matilda otto wessendonck furnished a little house on the hill near his splendid villa for the wagners first christened fafner repose wagner changed the title to the isle and for a time it was truly an asylum for this perturbed spirit but he must needs fall deeply in love with his charming and beautiful neighbor a woman of intellectual and poetic gifts and to the chagrin of her husband and of wagner's faithful wife the gossip in the neighborhood was considerable for the complete frankness of the infatuated ones was not the least curious part of the affair Litz knew of it so did the princess lane wittgenstein an immense amount of snooping was indulged in by interested lady friends of men of wagner she has her apologists and judging from the letters she wrote at the time and afterward several printed for the first time by knapp and bellart she took a lively hand in the general proceedings evidently she was tired of her good man's behavior and when he solemnly assured her that it was the master passion of his life she didn't believe him naturally not he had cried wolf too often besides minna like a practical person viewed the possibility of a rupture with otto wessendonck as a distinct misfortune otto had not only advanced much money to richard but he paid twelve thousand francs for the scores of reinold and valkyr and for the complete performing rights afterward he sent both to king ludwig the second as a gift but i doubt if he ever got a penny from his tenants for rent he also defrayed the expenses of the wagner concert at zurich a little item of nine thousand francs scandal and calumny invaded his home the fair fame of his wife was threatened no wonder the finale long deferred was stormy even operatic the lady was much younger than her husband she was born at the close of eighteen twenty eight therefore wagner's junior by fifteen years she was a Luckmeyer, her mother a stein a cultured sweet-natured woman it is more than doubtful if she could have endured wagner as a husband she did a wise thing in resisting his prayers not only was her husband a bar to such a proceeding but her children would have always prevented her thinking of a legal separation all sorts of plans were in the air when in eighteen fifty seven the american panic seriously threatened the prosperity of otto wessendonck who had every business interest in new york gossip averred that frau wessendonck would ask for a divorce but the air cleared and matters resumed their old aspect men of wagner's health always poor became worse it was a case of exasperated nerves made worse by drugs she daily made scenes at home and threatened to tell what she knew that she knew much is evident from her correspondence with frau wilk 
She said that Wagner had two hearts, but while he delighted in intellectual and emotional friendship with such a superior soul as Matilda, he nevertheless would not forego the domestic comforts provided by Mena. Like many another genius, Wagner was bourgeois. Those intolerable dogs, the parrot, the coffee drinking, the soft beds and solicitude about his underclothing, all were truly German, human, all too human. In September 1857, the newly married von Bülow's paid the Wagners a visit, and as the guest chamber of the cottage was occupied, they took up temporary quarters in an inn, the Raven, Wotan's Ravens. Cosima, young, impressionable, turned her face to the wall and wept when Wagner played and sang for his friends the first and second acts of Siegfried. Even then she felt the pull of his magnetism, of his genius, and doubtless regretted having married the fussy, irritable von Bülow, who had gone down in the social scale in wedding a girl of dubious descent. In Paris, Liszt, for many years, was only a strolling gypsy piano player to whom the Countess de Gaulle had condescended. Matilda Wessendonck entertained the von Bülows, who went away pleased with their reception. Above all, deeply impressed by the exiled Wagner, they so reported to Liszt, and von Bülow did more. As the scion of an old aristocratic family, he made many attempts to secure an amnesty for Wagner, as well as making propaganda for his music, which favors Wagner, who was the very genius of ingratitude repaid later. In one point, Herr Ludwig is absolutely correct. The composer was supported by his friends from 1849 to the year when King Ludwig intervened. The starvation talk was a part of the Wagner legend. Even the Paris days were greatly exaggerated as to their black poverty. Wagner was always a spendthrift. From November 1857 to May 1858, Wagner set to music the five poems of Matilda, veritable sketches for, for Tristan. Early in September 1857, the relations between Minna and Matilda had become strained. Wagner accused his wife of abusing Matilda in a vulgar manner. Worse remained, he had sent a letter by the gardener to Frau Wessendonck, and the jealous wife intercepted it, broke the seal, read the contents. To Wagner, this was the blackest of crimes. Yet can you blame her? To be sure, she had no conception of her husband's genius. For her, Reinze was his only work. Had it not succeeded, so had Tannenhauser and Lohengrin, also the Flying Dutchman. But Renzi was her darling. How often she begged him to write another opera of the same Wagnerian caliber. He has not failed to tell us. Otto Wessendonck's wife, she firmly believed, was leading him into a quagmire. What theater could ever produce the ring? One thing, however, Mena did not do. As most writers on the subject say she did, she did not show the fatal letter to Wessendonck at the time, only to Wagner. Later, she made its meaning clear to the injured husband, which no doubt provoked the explosive phrase quoted above. The youthful Karl Tossig, bearing credentials from Liszt, appeared on the scene in May 1858, and the entire household was soon in an uproar. Luckily, Wagner had persuaded Mena to take a cold-water cure at a sanatorium some distance from Zurich, so he could handle the wild-eyed Tossic, whose volcanic piano performances at the age of sixteen made the mature composer both wonder and admire. Tossic smoked black cigars, a trait he imitated from Liszt, and almost lived on coffee. Here is a curious criticism of him made by Cosima von Bülow, 
who, it must be remembered, was both the daughter and wife of famous pianist. She said, quote, Tosik has no touch, no individuality. He is a caricature of Litz, unquote. This, in the light of Tosik's subsequent artistic career, sounds almost comical. It also shows the intensely one-sided temperament of a remarkable woman who banished from her life both von Bülow and her father, Franz Liszt, when Wagner entered into her dreams. The fortitude she displayed after her Richard's death in 1883 was not tempered by any human feeling toward her father. His telegrams were unanswered. She denied herself to him. She became a Brunhild frozen into a symbol of intolerable grief. Of her personal fascination, the sister of Nietzsche, Elizabeth Forrester Nietzsche, told me, when I last saw her at Weimar, von Bülow succumbed to this charm. Rubinstein also. Query, perhaps that is the reason he so savagely abused Wagner in his conversations on music? And if gossip doesn't die, Nietzsche was another victim. On September 17, 1858, after a general row, Wagner left his home on the Green Hill, his isle, forever. Why? Plenty of conjectures, no definite statements. He makes a great show of frankness in his diaries, in his autobiography, but they were obviously edited by Bayreuth. Tristan and Isolde remains as evidence that a mighty emotion had transfigured the nature of a genius, and, instead of an erotic anecdote, the world of art is richer in the possession of a moving drama of desire and woe and tragedy. At the Berlin premiere of Tristan, the old Kaiser Wilhelm remarked, How Wagner must have loved when he wrote the work, which is sound psychology. 3. The two books discussed are constructive in nature. Not so the book of Emil Ludwig, Wagner, or The Disenchanted, which is frankly destructive. Since the Wagner case by Nietzsche, and not Nietzsche at his best, there has not been written a book so overflowing with hatred for Wagner, the man, as well as the musician. Ludwig is the author of poems, plays, and a study of Bismarck, the latter a noteworthy achievement. He is thorough in his attacks, though he does not measure up to Ernest Newman in his analysis of Wagner's poetry, libretti, and philosophy. The English critic's studies remain the best of its kind, because it is written without part Ludwig slash a la Nietzsche, though he cannot boast that poet's diamantine style. He accuses Wagner of being paroxysmal, erotic, a painter of moods. He couldn't build a Greek temple like Beethoven, weak as a poet, inconclusive as a musician. For Tristan and de Meistersinger, he has words of hearty praise. The Ludwig book stirred up a nest of hornets, and one lawsuit it resulted. A newspaper critic presumed to criticize, and the sensitive poet, who called Wagner every bad name in the Schmiff lexicon, invoked the aid of the law. We know only too well, thanks to that ill-tasting but engrossing autobiography, that Wagner was a monster of ingratitude. Hasn't Nietzsche, against his own natural feeling, proclaimed the futility of gratitude? Perhaps he learned this lesson from his hard experience with Wagner. We also know that Wagner wanted to run the universe but after a brief note from Ludwig II, he left Munich rather than face the angry burghers. He attempted to coerce Bismarck, but there he ran up against a wall of granite. Bismarck was a Beethoven lover, and he abhorred, as did von Bost, revolutionists. Thereat, Wagner wrote sarcastic things about the uselessness and vanity of statesmen. He didn't treat Ludwig II right when he announced from Venice that he wasn't in sufficient health and spirits 
to grant the king's request for a performance of the prelude to Lundgren in a darkened theatre with one listener, Ludwig the uh, Second. By the way, Ludwig the Second never sat through a performance alone of Parsifal. Once and once only, years before the completion of the work, he heard a performance of the prelude in Munich given for his sole benefit. Wagner's gruff letter wounded the sensitive idealist. In 1866, a few weeks after the death of Minna Wagner Planner, Cosima von Bülow Liszt followed Wagner to Switzerland. Probably the hostile attitude of Liszt in the affair was largely inspired by the fact that, when Richard and Cosima married, the latter abjured Catholicism and became a Protestant. Liszt, a religious man, despite his pyrotechnical virtuosity in the luxurious region of sentiment, never could reconcile himself to this defection on the part of a beloved child. It angered Nietzsche to discover in Wagner a leaning toward mysticism, toward religion. Witness the muck-duck mysticism and burlesque of re religious ritual in Parsifal. After Frauerbach came Ardor Schopenhauer in the intellectual life of Wagner. This was in 1854. His friend Willie lent him the book. Immediately he started to Schopenhauerize the ring, thereby making a hopeless muddle of situation and character. The enormous vitality of Wagner's temperament expressed itself in essentially optimistic terms. He was not a pessimist, and he hopelessly misunderstood his new master. Wotan must needs become a Schopenhauerian and Siegfried a pessimist at the close. Nietzsche was right. Schopenhauer proved a powerful poison for Wagner, and Schopenhauer himself laughed at Wagner's music. He remained true to Rossini and Mozart and advised Wagner, through a friend, to stick to the theater and hang his music on a nail in the wall. But when his library was overhauled, several marginalia were discovered. One, which he contemptuously wrote on a verse of Wagner's, Ear, ear, where are your ears, musician? Wagner, when Liszt abjured him to turn to religion as a consolation, replied, I believe only in mankind. Ludwig compares this declaration with some of the latter opinions concerning Christianity, of which Wagner has said many evil things. Wagner's life was a series of concessions to the inevitable. He modified his art theories as he grew older, and with fame and riches, his character deteriorated. He couldn't stand success. He, the bravest man of his day, the undaunted fighter for an idea, crooked the knee to cast, became an amateur mystic, and announced his intention of returning to absolute music, of writing a symphony strict in form, which for his reputation he luckily did not attempt. He was a colossal actor and the best self-adviser the world has yet known since Nero. But I can't understand Herr Ludwig when he asserts that from 1866 to 1883 the composer did nothing but compose two marches, finished Siegfried and Gotterdammerung, rather a large order, considering the labors of the man as practical opera conductor, prose writer, poet-dramatist, and composer, and then, too, the gigantic scheme of Bayreuth was realized in 1876. Comparatively barren would be a fairer phrase. After Tristan and Isolde, what could any man compose? A work which its creator rightfully said was a miracle he couldn't understand. After the anecdotage of Wagner's career is forgotten, after Bayreuth has become owl-haunted, Tristan and Isolde will be listened to by men and women who love or have been loved. It isn't pleasant to read a book like Ludwig's, truthful as it may be in parts, nor should he call our attention to the posthumous venom of the composer, 
as expressed in his hateful remarks concerning Otto Wessendonck. There, Wagner was his own meme, his own Albrecht, not the knightly hero who would not woo the fair Irish maid till magic did melt his will. Richard Wagner was once Tristan. End of chapter 26